Read with me now from Romans 9, verses 6 through 18. You can find that in your Bibles, or it's printed in your bulletin at page 11. Please stand for the reading of the word. And before we read, I remind you that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Romans 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, But also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures says to Pharaoh, Thank you, Sean. I wonder if any of you would be able to uh, complete these common repeated phrases that maybe you have heard. Feel free to uh, do that out loud if you want or under your breath or in your mind, but here's a few of them. You be you. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Some of you have heard them. Well, contrary to what you may think, what our world may believe, we are not here primarily to find and claim our own rights. We are not here to discover or to create our own identity. We are not here to express or promote our unique individualism. Well, how do we know why we're here. How do we know what is the meaning or the purpose of life? Where do we find the answer? Do we look within? Do we just listen to what we hear from without? Or maybe it would be better to listen to the author of life, the creator of all things. One of my favorite passages is in First Peter chapter 2, and this is written to Believers, and God says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And one pastor summarizes that by saying, God made us who we are to show the world who he is. Very different from those opening phrases. Now, over the years, people who have studied the Bible for their lives 
have written catechisms, short questions and answers to help us understand what the scriptures are teaching. And they do help us understand the answers to these big questions of life. So here's another one, a first one that I'm sure most of you know the answer to if you've grown up in this church or one like it. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Or perhaps the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And how does the answer start? That I am not my own. I am not my own, but I belong to Jesus Christ. These, I would call them basic, and yet foundational truths from the word of God, they put things in perspective for us. And really, they are essential to understanding the world that we live in and our place in it. And friend, if you've never heard this before, let me say it to you today, or let me remind you of it. This is God's world, not ours. He is the creator, and we are his creatures. Our lives are not our own. They belong to God. God owes us nothing. And we owe him everything. He is the king and we are his servants. His is the kingdom and we are the grateful guests. We return to our study of Romans today and we are in one of the midst, we are in the midst of one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. The deepest end of the pool. So if this is one of your first times With us here at Proclamation, you are joining us in one of the most difficult passages in the scriptures. We have seen in Romans 9 that God's word has not failed. Even though in the Old Testament, God had made a covenant with the people of Israel. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And as Paul writes, the majority of the Israelites at that time had rejected Jesus. So it looked like God's word had failed. Well, Paul answered that objection. He clarified by saying God's word has not failed. Why? Because the promise had always been to his chosen, his elect people. A select group of people within the nation of Israel that actually we saw included those who are not physically descended from Israel. It's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And that is good news for us today. So God's word has not failed. And in explaining this, Paul has expounded upon these difficult doctrines of the sovereignty of God, God's absolute, utter control over absolutely everything, and also his unconditional election, God's freedom, and choosing people for salvation before they were ever born, not based on anything in them at all, but owing completely to his own purpose and will. And as Paul explains these hard to understand at times, or maybe hard to accept, but biblical doctrines, he himself raises the natural objections that people have. So we saw in verse 14, Paul asks, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is it right or is it just for God to do this? And Paul goes to the Old Testament. He goes to the scriptures, the word of God, to answer this question. First, he turns to Moses, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
And we saw that Paul is reminding us of how God revealed his personal name to Moses, Yahweh. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That is, God is the eternal, self-existent one. He rules over all. He alone is totally free. He alone answers to no one but himself. So this was the first part of Paul's argument. His answer to this question, is there injustice on God's part? And his answer is to point us to the God who is. The answer to the objection, is there injustice on God's part, is found in the knowledge of God. And beloved, how do you know who God is? Your own limited, finite human opinion counts. You ready to hear this? For nothing. It counts for nothing. How do we know who God is? You look to God's revelation in his word. His revelation in the scriptures. And there you see that God has revealed himself to be completely free and perfectly just and righteous. This God is free to do whatever he wills. To have mercy on whomever he wills, he is sovereign over all. Is there injustice on God's part? Beloved, that is impossible. It is unthinkable. Why? Because God himself is the very definition of righteousness and justice. And his righteousness is understood in this. God will always value what is most valuable and act accordingly. And what is most valuable in all creation is not you. And it is not me. It is the glory of God, his own glory, and making his name known in all the earth. So we continue looking at this passage this morning, and we come to these difficult verses, verses 17 and 18. And the main point we'll see here is this. There is no injustice on God's part in the matters of divine sovereignty and unconditional election because in everything that God does, He is magnifying the glory of his name. He is making his glory known to the world. And beloved, that is our greatest need. And it is also our greatest good. To behold the glory of the one true God and to worship him. We aim to do that again today as we do every week as we now look at the second Old Testament example that Paul turns to in answering this same question. Is there injustice on God's part? So we're looking at verses 17 and 18. And there we read, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He wills. So not only does God have mercy on whomever he wills, but he also hardens whomever he wills. And at the outset, let us understand this. God does not have to actively do anything to harden the human heart. Every human heart will harden due to our own natural will and desires unless God 
actively intervenes in undeserved mercy. We must keep that in mind as we study this difficult passage. Now in Pharaoh's case, the hardening of his heart meant that he would not obey the command of the Lord. He would not humble himself before Almighty God and repent. It meant that Pharaoh did not fear the Lord, but he acted as if he himself was God and king. Pharaoh followed those phrases, you do you. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. That's what Pharaoh did because his heart was hard. Now, why did he do that? Why did he respond in a way of rejection to the word of God and rebellion? On the one hand, we can certainly say and affirm that the scriptures teach that we are all responsible. We are accountable to God for our actions, which we freely choose. The scriptures teach that, but that is not what Paul says here. That's not what he emphasizes here. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. This is something God is doing. For this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So the reason that Pharaoh responded the way he did was because God Almighty raised him up for that very purpose. That purpose that we will see so that his covenant people, the Israelites, so that their oppressors, the Egyptians, so that all the surrounding nations, and so that you and I today would know that God is the Lord. Yahweh, the great I am. Beloved, this is the God who is. And he is making his glory known to you today. And you owe him your allegiance and your worship. Now I can just say that, but I want you to see it. I want you to see it in the example that Paul uses. When he mentions Pharaoh, the people that he's writing to, they know that story well. It's been taught to them from their youth. They have read it and heard it over and over again. And maybe you do too. But we need to look at it closely to see what Paul is saying. So let's begin with a very quick summary. God's people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, they were enslaved by Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians. They cry out to God for deliverance. God hears their cry and he sends Moses to command Pharaoh to let his people go. And what does Pharaoh say? No. And like a little child, it's his favorite word. He repeats it over and over. No, no, no. He refuses to let the people go. And God sends plague after plague. How many? Ten. Ten plagues in judgment. And then finally, in this miraculous display of his almighty power to show that he is God. And Pharaoh, the most powerful king on the earth at the time, is absolutely nothing God Almighty parts the Red Sea. His people pass through on dry ground while Pharaoh and all his army try to follow and they are destroyed. They are buried in the waters of judgment. So there's a very quick summary of this history that is found in the book of Exodus. Now, if you read that history, you will find 18 times in the book of Exodus where it refers to the hardening of Pharaoh's 
heart so that he does not obey the Lord's command. And there are three different ways that the scriptures will refer to this hardening. It will say something like, as the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it will say, as Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then other times it will simply refer to as Pharaoh's heart being hardened, with no reference to the action of either the Lord or to Pharaoh. But as we consider this, as we we try to make sense of this, we try to discern what is Paul saying? What did he see there that made him use this example here in Romans 9? And what is God revealing about himself to us? We must pay careful careful attention to the text. Not our own human opinions. Not what we think is just and right. Not what we are comfortable with. What does the text actually say? What does God actually reveal about himself? So in this passage that Paul quotes from Exodus chapter 9, it's verse 16. Exodus 9, 16 is one he quotes here in Romans 9 about raising Pharaoh up. Right before that, in Exodus 9, verse 12, it says this, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Now one pastor helped me see that the key phrase to notice here is that one, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh did not listen. He did not let the people go. Why? Or we would ask, is that a surprise to Moses? When that happened, was he surprised? No. Why wasn't he surprised? Because it happened just as the Lord had spoken to him. And when did the Lord speak that to Moses? When did the Lord say, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will not let the people go? The Lord had said that to Moses not once, but twice before. The first time he told it to Moses before Moses even went back to Egypt. And the second time it was before there was any mention of Pharaoh hardening his own heart. So that first time was in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. Before Moses had ever gone back to Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, why is this important? I realize two weeks ago when we looked at the first portion of this, today we look at it again. These, these sermons may be a little more detailed, technical, looking at the arguments than than we're used to. So it can be tough going as we work our way through it. But try to catch what is important here. Why is this important? We don't like the idea, do we, of God hardening someone's heart before they harden it themselves. That doesn't sit well with us. But just, again, remember a sidebar here for a moment. Everyone is born with a hard heart. Everyone was born with a heart that is dead to God, a heart that does not obey God, that does not love God, a heart that will not and cannot desire or do good. Why? Because of original sin. Because Adam sinned in the garden, and in Adam sinned, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Paul has already made that perfectly clear in Romans chapter 5. But we don't like that idea. And we certainly don't like any notion of God hardening someone's heart before they harden it themselves. And so you may hear some pastors preach on this or maybe read a commentary on this passage and they will say 
that God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart doesn't start until the seventh plague and is the result of Pharaoh's own self-hardening. But hear me say, and don't just hear me say, but see it in the scriptures, that's not the testimony of the word of God. And it doesn't fit with what Paul sees in this history. It doesn't fit with why and how he uses this example. God said to Moses, before he ever went back to Egypt, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. And that's what happens. What the text points us to from the very first meetings with Pharaoh, not just the later ones. So let me just give you a few of many examples. You can read them if you want to read through that history in Exodus. Look at each of those 18 instances. It's my privilege to do so this week. But just one of, just a few of many examples. Before the very first plague in Exodus 7, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them. Why? As the Lord had said. After the second plague, Exodus 8, 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. As the Lord had said. After the third plague, Exodus 8, 19, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Over and over again, as the Lord had said. And what had the Lord said? I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. And here's the point, beloved. Here's why this is so important. Whether it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, or it says the Lord hardened his heart, or it simply describes that his heart was hardened. In each case, no matter who is credited with the action, it is happening as the Lord had said. And what the Lord had said was this, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. What does this mean? How are we to understand this? Well, but this means that behind Pharaoh's self-hardening, behind his heart was hardened, is the plan and the purpose of Yahweh, the Lord, the revelation of the glory of God. The plan and the purpose of God is not a response to what Pharaoh does. It is the sovereign rule over what Pharaoh does. Beloved, God Almighty, in his mercy, is revealing to us who he is. And yes, this is humbling. Right? This is hard. This is, this is hard for proud hearts to accept. But also, for the one given eyes to see and ears to hear, this is comforting. For God Almighty rules over all the hearts and actions of all mankind. And this is the only way that uh, that wonderful promise of Romans 8, 28 can be true. If God is going to work all things for the good of his people, then he must reign over all. And thanks be to God that he does. So this, this hardening of Pharaoh's heart, according to the purpose and plan of God, it served a positive, a good, a righteous purpose. And what was this purpose? It was the greatest one possible. Verse 19, 
or verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Amen. Beloved, the purpose was the display of the power of God and the spread of the fame of God. That God's name would be magnified in all the earth. That his glory would be revealed so that we would know him and worship him. And in Pharaoh's day, this purpose was accomplished directly as a result of Pharaoh's hard heart. For it was Pharaoh's hard heart that led to the plagues on the land of Egypt and the deliverance of God's people through the Red Sea. So we read before the eighth plague, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show. There's an indication of why, of the purpose, that I may show these signs of mine among them and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? So that God Almighty could make his glory known. So that the Israelites could see it. And the fathers would have a story to tell their children and their grandchildren, even down to this very day, so that we would know that God is Yahweh the eternal one, the self-existent one who is sovereign over all, who is free to do as he pleases. He is worthy of our worship and our obedience. He is God and we are not. Beloved, we owe our obedience to him. We belong to him. Or as we read in Exodus 14, after the 10 plagues, after the Israelites have fled from Egypt, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. He's going to chase after them at the Red Sea. And God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? To display his power over Pharaoh, the most powerful of human kings. God would destroy him and his army in judgment so that even the enemies of God's people would know that God is the Lord. Beloved, the name of the Lord was magnified and God was glorified. His glory was greatly revealed and this was righteous and just and good. Well, this hardening, remember, it is not described as a response from God to what Pharaoh does, but as God's sovereign rule over what Pharaoh does. This is what Paul sees in the text. And this is why he uses it as an example here in Romans 9. He draws it out, and that's why he says in verse 18, so then God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So Paul is now drawing a parallel to how God shows mercy. And what did we learn about that? God's mercy is not based in any way on prior human action. Verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion. Paul can't be more clear. It doesn't depend on what you want or what you do, but 
on God. So then, too, also, the hardening that is mentioned here is not based in any way on the will or action of man. And friend, God is not unjust. He is not unrighteous to harden whomever he wills. God is completely free to do as he pleases. And he will always act in accordance with what is most valuable, what he values most. And what is that? His own glory. And beloved, it is right and it is good for God to do so. So the hardening that Paul portrays here is a sovereign act of God. It is not caused by anything in the individuals who are hardened. Listen carefully. Not caused by them. Yes, they are already dead in sin. In Adam, all die. Yes, they already deserve damnation. But here with the case of Pharaoh, the emphasis is not on the guilt of Pharaoh, but on the sovereign act and purposes of God, who is the Lord. Now I know that this can be very difficult to understand or to accept. It's been difficult for me to wrestle with it this week in prayer and in the study of the word. So I want to finish. That doesn't mean we're almost done, but I want to finish by reflecting on seven guiding principles from the word of God. It also doesn't mean it's going to be a long time. Seven sounds like a lot. It'll go a lot. It'll go fast. But reflect on these seven guiding principles from the word of God. First of all, God is the judge of all the earth and he will do what is just. The scriptures tell us and history has shown us that righteousness and justice is the foundation of God's throne. And so, beloved, no matter what happens in your life, what happens in the lives of your loved ones, you can trust this God. When that is hard to do, what does he say? Look to the cross of Christ, where you will see that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is the judge of all the earth and he will do what is just and you can trust him. Beloved, remember that God is good and that he will do what is just. Second, God's ways are not our ways. God is infinite. We are finite. God is perfect in wisdom and knowledge. He knows things We don't know things we will never know. God's ways are not our ways. Third, God's giving mercy on the one hand and his hardening on the other. They are not equivalent acts. Although Paul makes a parallel between the two, they are not equivalent acts. Mercy, if you have received mercy, it is always given to those who do not deserve it. Hardening ever only affects those who by their own sin deserve condemnation. So we can hold these two things to be true at the same time. First, God hardens whomever he chooses. And second, whomever God hardens because of their own sin is responsible for their ultimate condemnation. God's freedom in giving mercy and his freedom in hardening are not equivalent acts next i've already said this today but i'll say it again god owes us nothing we owe him everything 
if God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills, what makes the difference? And we already saw the example, Jacob and Esau. Same mother, same womb, same time, twins. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What makes the difference? What's the difference between those who are consigned to hardening and those equally guilty, equally undeserving, who instead receive God's mercy? The difference is found not in you. It is found in Yahweh. The only difference is the sovereign free will of God. And so, beloved, we who have received mercy, let us never forget this. Is this truth not a death blow to our pride and our self-righteousness? Why have we received mercy? Praise be to God, he has freely given it to us. We have done nothing to deserve it or to earn it. And so that's why you've heard me say, anytime somebody asks you, how are you? You can always say, better than I deserve. Why? Because you know that you deserve God's just condemnation for your sin, but he has had mercy on you through Jesus Christ and he has made you his beloved child forever. God owes me nothing. He owes us nothing and yet he has given us the kingdom through our union with his son, Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. What am I on here? Five, I think. Fifth, our God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel chapter 18, the Lord says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live, live, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. So hear and see the heart of God in that proclamation. Or 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So see and hear the heart of our God. Number six, our God is a God who saves, who delights to show mercy. So remember that as you wrestle with this difficult doctrine. Our God is a God who saves. He delights to show mercy. When God reveals his character, when he reveals his glory, what's the oft-repeated phrase? I am a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is what God proclaims to us. And then finally, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Beloved, the central act the central place in all of human history where God most powerfully, most clearly displayed his glory, his righteousness, his mercy was the cross of Jesus Christ. God sent his own son into the world to deliver us from the condemnation that we deserve by being condemned in our place. He became a curse for us in his death on the cross. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again so that now, No one who comes to Jesus will ever be condemned. And God is able to take the hardest of hearts and remove it and replace it with a heart of flesh that loves him and rejoices in his mercy. And so I pray today that if you have not yet received God's mercy in Christ Jesus, you will do so at this very moment. You will come to Christ.
every week, our aim here at Proclamation is to put the glory of the almighty triune God on display and just invite you to respond, to just lay the feast before you and invite you to come to the table. And today, today that glory is God's utter free sovereignty that you may know that the God who made you, the God who loves you, the God who gave himself for you, he and he alone is the Lord. So how will you respond today? By the mercy of God, I pray that we will all give praise to God, that we will behold his glory and worship him and him alone. Amen.